Hi everybody, it's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. I have another Stefan, uh, Stefan Kinsella, uh, who I'm ex very excited to have on the show. I'm a massive fan. He is a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, a member of the advisory panel of the Center for a Stateless Society, the founder and editor of Libertarian Papers, and was a book review editor of the Mises Institute's Journal of Libertarian Studies. You can find him at Stefan Kinsella, S-T-E-P-H-E-N. Kinsella, that's right, isn't it? P-H-A-N. A-N, Kinsella.com. A highly recommended, uh, great thinker. Uh, he's, a, he's a lawyer. Uh, and uh, if you ever want to get your mind regularly blown by the buckshot of anti-IP sentiments, this is the go-to guy. So thank you so much, Steph, for taking the time to, uh, to come on the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. So uh, the topic that we, I'm, a, I'm a newer parent than, than Stefan, so uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about was that there seems to be somewhat of a paucity of libertarian parenting material. Some of the libertarian parenting material comes in through some of the more religious aspects of mainstream libertarianism, which has obviously some strengths and some weaknesses which we can talk about. And there, is, there are two discussions that I've come across, uh, one by Murray Rothbard called Kids Lib, uh, and another in uh, Ayn Rand's Q&A sessions where they don't really talk about parenting very much. And you'll notice that there's really no children uh, in, um, uh, in any of Atlas uh, Shrugged or The Fountainhead or any of uh, Ayn Rand's novels. And she writes very little about child raising. She herself, of course, was childless. But they do talk about, you know, if you don't like your parents as an adult, the voluntary principles, freedom of association uh, applies, and you can choose to see them or not see them as you see fit. But they don't talk a lot about how to raise children uh, using uh, freedom principles, using non-aggression, using voluntarism. And I have argued for many years that it is really essential that we raise children according to the principles that we want them to live by uh, as adults. And um, I, I just wanted to mention before we get into the discussion, I just spent a couple of days at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. I know, the name maybe needs some work, but it's a great time if you can make it. And there were hundreds of families around, and my daughter, of course, we were interacting a lot with uh, these, the, the children and the parents. One of the things that I really loved, which I've never experienced before, was I did not hear a single raised voice. I didn't see any spanking. I didn't see any threatening. I saw lots of negotiation, the usual parenting cautions of, you know, be careful here, don't do that. But it was a very gentle form of parenting, and you really saw that reflected in the fact that the kids didn't push, they didn't hit, they were very gentle. They had the usual slight problems with sharing that's inevitable, and Lord knows as adults we have those challenges as well. But I was really, really impressed by the quality of parenting. Uh, and it was a beautiful thing because often when I'm around parents, I do see a fair amount of aggression and feel like I sort of have to step in if, if necessary. So here I could really just relax. So, uh, Stefan, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your own approach to, to parenting and how you manage the behavior of your son uh, without, without using a spanking or other forms of aggression, which... Uh, I think would be pretty much violations of the non-aggression principle and also have some pretty negative effects developmentally. Uh, you know, IQ and aggression seems to increase uh, proportional to spanking. So what's your approach been to the ever-present question of libertarian parenting, which is how do you manage the behavior of pre-rational -re -pre creatures? Well, I mean, you, you might have experienced some of the same things I did, which is that you, you, uh, you figure things out as you have to because you can't start at, you know, we're going to get pregnant now and have kids and figure out where they're going to go to high school in the beginning. So there's different stages, right? I mean, <clears throat> first you do the pregnancy classes, and then you do the, you know, figure out an OBGYN, then you start figuring out how to prepare the house for the newborn and uh, breastfeeding and all these things. And the discipline stuff starts a little bit later. I mean, you're not going to even consider spanking a 
a three-month-old newborn, you know, it's not even a consideration. It only starts happening a little bit later. Um, and I mean, luckily, uh, you know, I am a libertarian, and uh, and I was hardly spanked when I was a child as well. And uh, so it just didn't. I, I I always had the thought that you know the the re, the overreaction against spanking was overblown. Is what I sort of thought. I mean, I didn't think it did that much harm necessarily, although it could be abused. But I I never did really you know think about it much. Um, and I stumbled onto the sort of Montessori philosophy early on uh, when my kid was. Not even you know six months old, and um, and <clears throat> this is you asked about libertarian approaches to parenting. One of the things that I've been hearing for twenty years by reading Ayn Rand and people like that is you know she was really high on Montessori. I didn't know much about it; I just had heard of it from her. And in Houston, I lived near one of the best Montessori schools around, which I didn't know much about. I just knew it was near me. And to be honest, I, I, I was probably a little bit leery of Montessori because of Rand, not because I disagree with everything she writes, but I mean, she didn't have kids, you know. And I, I thought maybe this is one of these uh, "it looks good on paper" things to Rand. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but as we started exploring uh, schools for our for our son um, when he was about a one year old. Um, I looked at all the regular schools, and I also looked at the Montessori school. And uh, at that time, my wife and I had decided to uh, to uh, uh, make, do homemade baby food, which I think I mentioned to you for a kid. Right, right. And, you know, we're we're not big granola crunchers or vegetarians or anything, but we decided to just do it. And uh, just for the same reason, you do breastfeeding if you can. You figure in the first year or two of life, the the better nutrients you give to the kid, the better. And uh, so we did it. It was a lot of fun. We we made everything, uh, you know, uh, super baby food, oatmeal and kale and uh, uh, liver. And I mean, it was incredible how he ate the first year before he got free will, <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, and got picky. And uh, when it, when it could be a centrally planned economy, uh, right? I understand. Exactly. Soviet and production. They're like, hey, he, he he eats liver. I'm like, yeah, because <laughs> I put a spoon in his mouth and he eats it. <laughs> um, but uh, so we went to the Montessori school. You know, uh, we were telling the, the the people there our approach, and they said, well, you're pretty much Montessori already. The way you're doing things with Whole Foods and with the um, um, that approach. Now, I might sound like a Montessori zealot as this goes throughout, although I really um, I don't think I am. Um, I'm actually not persuaded that there's an entire cohesive, coherent science behind the whole thing, although a lot of it makes sense. And I think it's more their attitude that I like. Um, so I, I've drawn a lot from that, and I've, I've learned a lot of uh, – I've gotten a lot of book ideas and training ideas from them, including – so the, the discipline te- uh, technique that you asked about, um, we, we try to use what the Montessori system uses, which is called positive discipline. And you may have heard of this. There are some, some well-known books out there like uh, – I think uh, Jane Nelson has one on positive discipline, and uh, Catherine Cavols, K-V-O-L-S, has one called Redirecting Children's Behavior. So it's that sort of approach. Um, and you know, a lot of parents nowadays, they, the ones that don't use spanking, you may have noticed they use something called time out, you know, which is common. Right. We hear about that. Um, we don't really use time out because time out is, is still punishment. It's just non-corporeal punishment. So it's it's – it's not as you know unethical, I guess, as, as spanking, but it's still punishment. And the idea of positive discipline is, you know, you don't you don't want to teach your kids to fear things. You don't you don't want to teach them by instilling fear, which is the same reason you don't you don't like to yell and raise your voice either. You know, you want to raise a civilized child. Um, 
So we've used positive discipline and we, we used it with luck. And, you know, I, I heard your stories about your, your daughter and maybe good parents think they're lucky because they have good children or maybe there's some, some connection, you know. But you Well, know. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that our daughter was easy for the first six months. I mean, we, she, she, she never slept more than an hour or two at a time. She, she always wanted to be carried. It was, it was a lot of work at the beginning, but I think that that sort of patience and, and pacifism uh, has really, uh, I wouldn't say turned her around, but it certainly hasn't exacerbated any of those difficult tendencies, at least for us that were apparent early on. Yeah, no, I, of course, patience is important. And I mean, that's the important thing about wanting to, wanting to be a parent. And if, if you know you go into it with open eyes and you want to do it, and you, you really then don't have an excuse for being frustrated or you shouldn't be frustrated. I mean, it's and most most times you're not because you wanted the whole deal, the whole package deal, you know. Um, and of course, if you're frustrated with your children and you uh, resent them and you didn't really want them or they're an accident or something, I guess that could. Uh, of course, affect their their viewpoint of their place in the world and how they are with you. Um, so we use positive discipline, and it works. It works very well. And to be honest, I don't have to use it that much. I mean, my kid is six years old now. And he's extremely smart, and uh, we pretty much just have conversations now. Um, <laughs> but but you know, as an example of the, of the approach and of the general um, Montessori sort of way of dealing with your kids, you know. Uh, you get the kids to help you with things and do what they're supposed to do, and even if it's easier for you to do it yourself, you know. For example, if your if your child has dinner, you know, it takes you ten seconds to pick the plate up and put it in the dishwasher, and then it's done with. But you know, I try to tell my child, you know, it's his plate, it's his job to do that, and it might take three minutes, and he might drop it, and it's a big disaster. But it gets better over time. But it takes longer to actually do things. It's actually easier for the parents to do things for their children, and that's why they do them, you know. Um, right, right, but it robs them of the chance to learn, and there are those times where yeah, you, oh, I'm in a hurry, but I have to slow down and wait for the child to oh, figure of course, it out. Of course, there's sometimes when you don't do it, but as a general sort of approach. Um, I mean, this is a little bit more advanced down the line, but for homework, for, for example, in school, which I don't know what your approach to it is, but I, I mean, I'm, I, I think the schools nowadays are, are insane with this homework um, uh, ours, luckily, is not too bad. I mean, it seems to me they should go to school during the day and and have a life at night, you know. But um, um, the uh, uh, the homework at, at, at say some of my f- friends' kids' schools, they give them Monday's homework on Monday. They give them Tuesday's homework on Tuesday. So the kid never learns self scheduling and self discipline. They just nice. do what they're told. Uh, at my kids' school on Monday, they're given the week's homework, and it's due on Thursday. That's it, and it's up to the kid to figure out how to pace it out. And you know, I could sit there, but I could do their job for them, and uh, the, the school's job. And I could on Monday night, I could say, "Son, you got to do 45 minutes tonight because that's one third of the whole thing." But I don't. All I say is, at you know, at 7:30, your pencil's going down because you're not going to work past that. So you do what you think you need to do, and you know, and they. So that's an example of how you. And, and then he's going to learn. He's going to, you know, a lot of kids when they go to college, they're sort of thrown to the wolves because you're sort of. Um, you're not handheld as much in college, but they're used to being handheld in high school and in elementary school. Yeah, that's right. Now, I, I was talking to my neighbor's kids. Uh, he's, uh, he's 10 years old, and he gets over an hour to an hour and a half of homework every night. I think that's just horrendous. And there is no evidence whatsoever that increased homework leads to increased test scores or intelligence. I, it's become just this bizarre thing where you just heap children with homework. And it's just another way, particularly in the public schools, that the government's kind of running your children's lives because yeah. they don't just get them during the day, but then they have to do all of this insane, dumb, non-productive busy work in the evenings, which 
doesn't help them at all learn anything other than it just fills their lives with chores, which I think is, you know, it's that old Soviet model, right? Never give them a free moment and, and they won't ever develop no, a personality. I agree completely. And I think that, um, I mean, I think, this, you know, in, I, I agree there's a lot of insidious and, and uh, uh, malintentioned form, you know, uh, uh, malintended aspects of it. But it, also, you know, the ones that are sort of just dumb and playing along, trying to figure out how to run a school, it's like they're just throwing, um, you know, it's like they say, well, the teachers need to get more pay or we need to have more teachers to reduce school size. I mean, classrooms, they're just throwing money at it. They're just throwing a sort of a, a brute force approach at it. Let's just throw more hours at the kid. Maybe they'll do better that way. Um, well, and, and wouldn't it be great if you never assigned homework, but the lessons were so interesting and absorbing to the children that the children wanted to do it rather than having it be assigned to them? Absolutely. Uh, and that, that to, I mean, that's the challenge. This is the problem when you have this coercive system is you don't end up having to woo the children to get really interested and fascinated in knowledge. You end up just having to order them to do stuff and it gives them that whole mentality of I just have to do what the personal authority tells me to do. My desires aren't that important and my free time isn't that important. It's a real, it's a stamp of ownership that's put on the children even outside of school, which I think is just brutal. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, a child is not working full time like, like say, adults are, but in a way, school is their job, right? Well, I don't go to work for eight, nine hours during the day and then have to come home and work three or four hours again at night. I mean, unless, you know, unless I'm unfortunate or I want to. But I mean, your job is supposed to be your job. And uh, these kids are supposed to have a well rounded life. And, uh, you know, I don't understand why eight hours a day is not enough to get what, to learn what you need to learn. I couldn't go to school for eight hours a day now, it would drive me insane. And it also it puts, I think it puts a certain bone of contention between parents and children because the children don't want to do it. The parents have to nag them to do it. It yes. reduces the quality of interaction between parent and child. My nieces used to be in tears over the homework they got from. This was from a, even a private school, the French school that they went to. Uh, they just hated it. And of course, the parents are like, no, you have to do it. And the kids didn't want to do it. And it just creates that much more friction uh, at what should be a very pleasant time between the parents and children. Absolutely. And uh, the... Uh, um now, there's a place in life for having to do things. I think you mentioned in your podcast, uh, which I thought was a great point, which I've heard before, is that um, kids need to be bored. You know, um, I mean, uh, the other day I was with my kid and he said something like, you know, I was talking to his mother or we were doing something and, you know, I, I'd forgotten to bring a book or something. He says, Dad, I'm bored. I said, well, you know, it's not my job to entertain you. <laughs> and uh, and also the less he had forgotten to bring his book. And, you know, we're in this mode now where every time we go to a restaurant or we go over a trip, I'll say, you know, Ethan, you know, you might want to bring your books because he reads a lot of books and he'll bring them. But if every now and then if I don't remind him, he might forget. And you, I have to force myself to let him forget it. In other words, it, I know that if we walk out the door and there's no book and I don't remind him and he forgets. We're going to be somewhere, and he's not going to have his book, and it's going to be, you know, uh, an issue. Well, yeah. well, but I force myself to let him forget it because next time he won't forget it, you know. So you have to sort of take the pain, right? Um, just yeah, like the, the, you can't shield them from consequences, or they don't learn that there are consequences, right? And that is exactly the heart of positive discipline: is to um, make, let the children um, have consequences. So uh, it's it's hard to think of an example off the top of my head, but instead of punishing a child for doing something that you view as wrong. You sort of uh, amplify or exacerbate or at least make sure that they see the consequence that's somehow naturally connected to what they did. Now, you're not, you're not punishing them, but you know, it would be like you – know, it's almost like withholding reward except you, don't, you want it to be a, a natural part of the process um, because that's what real life is. right? If you, if you don't do something, it just, just doesn't come. The results don't come. 
Right, right. Now, you, you mentioned something uh, about the general philosophy of Montessori, uh, and you were tying it into some of the stuff that you were doing with, with the food. I don't think for most of my listeners who may not be that familiar, uh, you know, there's a whole world that you get into when you become a parent that you yes. just didn't know anything about before, yes. like all those weird sections of the mall that you used to just scurry yes. past on your way to the, the video store or the electronic store or whatever. Uh, so people may not be that familiar with Montessori. I was wondering if you could give us uh, your outline of yes. how Montessori approaches the challenges of, of learning and discipline and so on. It's kind of hard to explain or hard to understand without seeing it, but once you see it, it's really hard, uh, easy to understand. There was a woman, an Italian woman named Maria Montessori. She, I think she was actually the first medical doctor, female medical doctor in Italy. Um, she was she was sort of Randian in a way. I mean, she was tenacious. She was intelligent. She loved children, though. And um, and she, is, this is like 1906. I mean, so over 100 years ago, she saw these children that were like the, not the retarded children, but sort of the uh, the ones that are relegated to I don't want to say morons' houses, but they, there was a word sort of like that almost. Um, and she took these special children, and she found a way to, to arrange their environment so that they could learn almost like regular kids. In fact, some of them were regular. They just had developmental problems or something. And so she started studying this and then studying it with normal children as well. And she came up with a theory that's been pretty well borne out by scientific evidence over the years um, – which is that children develop in certain phases. They call them planes of development. And they basically are four six-year phases from zero to six, six to 12, 12 to 18, 18 to 24. And basically the idea is you're really not completely a fully developed adult human until about 24. And then each of those six-year phases is divided into two planes of development. So, you, so what they do is – what they say is your mind is developing differently in each of these. You have different interests, different social needs or whatever. So they sort of arrange an environment around the children um, in which the child can learn or teach himself. In fact, in Italian, they don't even call the teachers teachers. They call them guides. So the teacher is just there to observe the children. And what's going on? And if they get off track or if they need, you know, like this kid is falling short in math, they kind of tell them you need to be on track in this. But they're supposed to find their own interest and direct themselves and basically learn themselves. Um, um, one example that impressed me about the school I went to, which was a Montessori school, um, when we were interviewing, my wife and I were sitting in the, um, the admissions director's office, you know, down in, in the administrative part of the school. It was maybe two or three in the afternoon. And some, I don't know, 11-year-old, 10-year-old boy walked by carrying a tray of sushi. Now, that was his project. He just decided to make sushi. <laughs> but wow. he stepped in the office. We were strangers there. He just walked in politely, but he said, excuse me, would you like some sushi? He offered all three of us sushi. You know, and maybe one of us took it or not, but, and then he walked on. The point, and th the fact that he was, number one, in an environment where he felt he wasn't intimidated by walking in this administrator's office. He was confident enough to do it. And that was his project. He made sushi. Now that's a learning experience, but you're not going to find that on you know the government uh, multiple choice uh, standardization <laughs> test that these teachers do. Um, right. And the fact that he would view the administrator as an enjoyable resource rather than a sort of finger-wagging, threatening yes. figure out of Pink Floyd's The Wall, I think that's yes. a really nice relationship it, to have with authority. It's, it's very libertarian in spirit. Um, I mean, I have not found – there's another amazing aspect to it. They, they, you know, they, they teach to be children of the world. We're all humans on the same planet. You know, and from an outsider's perspective, especially if you're sort of culturally conservative and you're used to sort of fighting this kind of California New Age – kind of UN one world BS, 
you might be a little leery of it, you know, but if you think about it, there's nothing wrong with that. We are people of the world. <laughs> we do want peace with each other. It's better to cooperate than not. I mean, this is all the essence of libertarianism. And in fact, one thing I love about the Montessori approach is that every school, they, some of them implement it differently, but they, they often have what's called a peace table or a peace pole. And the young children in these classes, I'm talking three years old maybe uh, and, and older, if they have a dispute with each other, they're supposed to work it out themselves. And they have like an escalating series of, uh, of, of steps or procedures worked out already. So, for example, you know, Johnny and and, and Roger, you know, Roger's not letting Johnny play with his toy or not playing with him on the you know, they're supposed to communicate with each other and tell them, you know, I'm upset that you're doing this, whatever. If they can't work it out, they're supposed to basically go to the peace table and get some of the community around, like three or four of their friends, to hear their case. Huh. It's almost like um, um, not arbitration, but mediation. And right, then, right. and then, at, as a, you know, then they can bring the teacher in if they have to. But the point is, they're, they're, you know, this is respectful of their nature as individuals, and it's giving them some responsibility for themselves. Right, and the teacher is there to facilitate the mediation rather than to render a judgment. Yeah, right? or an older child, and that's the other thing. The three years, the three, the, the, when the children are, um, um, because they're viewed as having these three-year planes of development, um, the classes, at least from age uh, three to about um, eighth grade, they put the kids into uh, three years of age at a time. So my kid is not in first grade; he's in low, what's called lower elementary. So he's in a classroom with first, second, and third-year kids, and they only have one teacher. They don't have 17 teachers. They have one. Huh. And the, so the advantage of this is, is several-fold. Number one, they have the same teacher for three years. The teacher gets to know the kid very well, and she gives reports to the parents orally. She sits down and tells them what she's seen with the kid. It's not this um, right. standardized report, although they use that because they have to comply with the state for record tracking. And right. the other advantage is when they come into the class in, in, at first, they're the young kids, and they are helped by the older kids. And then when they're the older kids, then part of their job is to help teach and guide and mentor and protect the younger kids who are coming to the class. So you sort of get this multi-generational uh, effect. Um, and and that, that's, I mean, that, there's a, many positives to that. The two that pop into my mind is one that it, it teaches sort of care and nurturing for the, for the younger kids, which is <laughs> – I went to a boarding school, which was quite the opposite uh, a reality of, of a social pecking order. But the second thing is I think the sooner that you can get children to teach other children, the sooner you can really gauge the extent of their knowledge. Because if you have older children teaching younger children, there's nothing that makes you more humble about your, the quality of your knowledge than trying to instruct somebody else because that really reveals any limitations you might have. Right. You know, and I, it, it, you know, at, at the schools I'm familiar with, like this, they, I would say they wouldn't tolerate bullying, but I don't think it even comes up. I mean, I don't think there's a single instance of it at these kind of schools. I mean, you know, maybe a little push here or there for little kids, and then they learn. But the bullying, I mean, these kids are taught that they're they're friends, they support each other, and and that's the natural condition. Now, I do sound like I say like a Montessori zealot because I'm interested in it, but I actually don't. I I think that any particular thing you mention. About it, you could disagree with, um, but it's just the fact that they think really hard about how you would do it from the kid's perspective. So they're just they're focused on it, and they have a systematic framework that they can resort to to have some consistency. Another example, like for summer school um, or for um, for summer school, you can send your kids there when they're younger. Some 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 regular schools would have Monday, Wednesday, Friday if you don't want to go full time. Part-time is Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Montessori says, no, no, no. Part-time is Monday through Friday, but in the mornings so that there's consistency. The kid is not jerked in and out of school one day. Right. So it's, it's, and it's, it's just not that that's a big profound insight, but it's that there's hundreds of these things that are the result of careful thinking about the child 
which is what you and I do as parents. You sit and you try to think about it, and, you, and we're going to stumble upon a lot of the same um, um, solutions because you just think about it and it just makes sense. No, that, that's absolutely right. And, and it, what I love about the Montessori approach, and it's not just Montessori, but more private schools than public schools, of course, is that the child is actually the customer. The child is actually the client. As you say, they try to figure out what is going to be the most engaging and interesting and exciting for the kid. And that, of course, I mean, not even the parents are the customers in the public school system, the bureaucrats and the teachers of the, the unions are the, are the customers. Uh, so I really like the fact that it's built from what would the child prefer, what's the most exciting for the child. Because what that does is it assumes something that is not assumed in most cultures, which is the, the child is benevolent and wants to learn. And all you need to do is figure out what's going to be, you know, open the way to motivation. And of course, anybody who's had kids and given them this kind of freedom, you see it all the time. My daughter now is obsessed with trying to figure out how to put her shoes on. She, she, she won't stop. She won't let me help her. Like she really wants to, to do all of that herself. I think her judgment at 18 months is fantastic insofar as she'll take a step down. Like if I try to help her take a step down uh, and she can do it, she'll actually just push my hand away. Like, no, I, I can do it myself. And she's right. But then when she comes to a step that's too big for her, she'll wait and she'll hold up her hand so that I can help her. So her judgment even of what is physically safe for her is fantastic. And it's not something you can teach a child that young. And it's assuming that the child is, is competent and benevolent and curious, wants to learn, wants to explore, has good judgment. And you just need to facilitate that. That's the beautiful thing that I, I think I see coming out of the Montessori system that you're describing. Yeah, and um, there was even one of her books was called The Absorbent Mind. And one of the phases of development is this very early stage where they get really, say, absorbed in a task. And so the Montessori approach is just leave them alone. I mean, because yeah. you, you'll see a kid sitting there you know, staring at some little task for maybe – Maybe thirty minutes or so, which is great for a small child. But you know, if you if you think, oh, she's been at that ten minutes, let me go ask her about it, or let me interfere. Don't you know, just leave them alone and let them, let them let it run its course. Let them be absorbed in something and 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 explore it from every angle and maybe repeatedly over and over and over again. And that's perfectly fine. Um, now, as as a dad and as a parent, um, I think you and I talked before, and I heard you on one of your podcasts talking about the. Um, the reading method, which is another Montessori thing, the phonetic idea, right? That you don't waste time teaching them the names of letters. Yeah, I mean, that never shows up anywhere. I still remember being really confused as a kid, probably at about <laughs> four years old, looking at the word R and saying, well, I taught that that was R, right. but it's in the middle of the word A-R-E, right. which is right. also R, and it right. just made no sense to me. Yeah, it's confusing. And I mean, I never did teach my, my child the alphabet. He just learned it by osmosis because that's just going to come naturally. I mean, you don't have to. Just teach them the sounds. And um, and that that is a Montessori approach too. And and uh, you know, the system I used was a blend of that and this Glenn Doman approach, which is sort of the whole word approach. But that just worked fine. And in fact, you know, uh, you know, uh, the Montessori says this, for example, which I actually didn't follow, although it makes sense to me. They said what you do is first you teach a kid to write before they can read. And the theory behind that is. You know, once you start learning what the letters sound like, you know, if you could if you could write C A T on paper, because you're trying to spell the word cat out, I mean, you could sound out cat ta. So if the child writes the word cat, well, he wrote it, so now he knows what that sounds like because he wrote it himself. So he could look back at it and then he could read it, right? So it's, it's more active than just looking at the letters, right? Yeah, but once he writes it, he knows what he wrote, and then he can read what he wrote. So writing is in a way easier than reading. And not only that, cursive is easier than print because your hand is more smooth and it's also more elegant. So if you if you combine these things, you you teach the sounds of letters, you teach cursive, and you teach writing before reading. 
it makes perfect sense. This is the Montessori approach of looking at it from the child's perspective. Now, in my case, I, I just taught my kid to read really early before he could even write. So I, I, I didn't follow what they, they taught, and that's okay. It worked for me. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. That's fascinating. And you, you, I think you said that your, your son was reading before he was two, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he started – I remember his first word was at, well, like maybe uh, 16 or 18 months. He, wore the, he read the word red to me. I was holding these flashcards, and he just said red, and I freaked out. I said, oh, my God. This is <laughs> uh, it's, it's incredible because it's, it's just not that hard if you – I mean they, they have a facility for picking up these patterns and this language of that age. Um, there was another thing that's not related to all this directly, but it was um, there, I read a book or two about water babies, you know, like teaching your kids. I mean, there, there are kids that learn how to swim before they're one. Um, it's incredible some of these pictures. I didn't do it quite that young, but I did it really, really, really early. And uh, but I do think of all the things I did. Probably reading was the most important because you know reading, e- even more than math and stuff, because reading is a foundation for everything. Once you once you teach a kid to read well, and then you instill a love for reading in him. I think that is almost the, the greatest thing you can do for them because then they're independent and then they can just start exploring so many things, um, um, which is and, – and, and how do you instill a love for reading? Well, you have you – know, if your kid sees you, he, your mother, his mother and father reading all the time on the weekends or you know, as a casual kind of a leisure activity, they think it's kind of a natural thing to do, right? But if you're sitting around swilling beer and watching sports and TV all the time, then they're going to they're gonna, – or watching NASCAR, they're going to think that's what you do, you know? Yeah, I've, I've never felt uh, particularly cool in my life, but I know that at this particular phase in my daughter's life, I'm cool. Uh, like what I do, she wants to do. Uh, so that takes a bit of getting used to. Now, one of the things that I found, Steph, was, what, and, and I don't know if you, you found this as well, I found that restrictions weren't a big deal in my household, right? There's, there's we obviously childproof, but there's some stuff that you just have to uh, tell her not, like if you the stove's on or whatever, don't touch or whatever. And I found that restrictions weren't a big problem. And I, th- I think that there were two reasons for this. The first was that I- Isabella has so few restrictions that she kind of doesn't care. I think if you're constantly putting fences around the kid, they just fight back and they want to find ways around it. But if it's like you can go anywhere except just this one place, they're like, okay, well, I'll just go everywhere else. And they didn't really, she, she didn't really mind that. And the other thing was that um, uh, I made it ridiculous, as I always try to make as much parenting as I can ridiculous, which is that uh, I came up with uh, uh, my own version of the MC Hammer song, uh, which is, um, uh, I would just, if she was going somewhere she shouldn't, I'd say, do, 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 don't touch that, dude, and do a little dance, and she'd get distracted by the dance, and I'm sure that she'll be enjoying that when she's 13 and we're at the mall, uh, because I can't imagine she'll ever be embarrassed by that kind of behavior. But I found sort of making it ridiculous plus having as few restrictions, like every time I'd want her to not do something, I'd really, really think about why. Why don't I want her to do it? Is it just something that's going to be kind of messy for me, like she wants to play with water so she might get wet? And I would really, yeah, sometimes you have to grit your teeth and just say, go for it. I'll, I'll, I'd rather have an hour, an hour cleanup than put a restriction on that either isn't going to be consistent or isn't there for a good reason because I think that kids can kind of yeah. smell that. Yeah. No, I agree completely. I, I mean, I didn't have that problem too much. I don't, I don't know why um, we did have baby proofing, but, um, you know, uh, early on when he was, you know, we started learning about the Montessori techniques when he was about nine months old. If I had learned it earlier, I never would have put him in a crib at all. I put him in a crib for the first nine months, but as soon as I learned the Montessori approach, I got rid of the crib. I took the mattress out. I put the mattress on the floor in the corner of this big bedroom that was his bedroom. Now, the room had baby gates on the room, so he couldn't get out of the room. But he would go to sleep at night as 11 months old, say, on a mattress on the floor. And the theory behind that is 
you know, if he rolls off, he's got to get back on. It teaches them um, some self responsibility and independence, and also they're not in a damn cage. I mean, <laughs> you know, if he's in a room and he, why would he? Why should he be behind bars? I mean, literally, it's, <laughs> it it just makes no sense. You don't have to do it. And when they're, you know, when they're two or three months old, you put the bassinet on the floor um, on the right, mattress, right. and they start getting used to that. So it's sort of that whole approach. Um, but for for danger, you know, as they get older, then you can explain things to them. I mean, my son's actually a little bit paranoid, probably because I was always paranoid, and I know that I was raised in the country, and I almost killed myself seventeen times, and so I maybe warn him about too many things. But sometimes I'll do I'll do the opposite. Like, uh, you know, sometimes I would see him fall, maybe nineteen months old, a toddler about to fall over. My wife would freak out and try to run to him. I said, No, let him fall. You just let right. him fall. Now I don't want to poke his head on an ice pick, but you know, if it's something. He can recover from. I would let him do it because you only learn from experience, from a lot of yeah. Like a a bruise is one thing. A impaling is is yeah. another. Yeah. My daughter's got this thing where she wants to go on her little wagon. We have a slight slope on our driveway, and yeah. So she just she just sits on it and wants to go. And the first time that she goes, you're like, oh, you know, every muscle is contracting in horror, right? But but what she does is she goes to a certain amount of speed. She puts her leg down. She turns around and she says, stop. Right, so yeah. she, she is able to gauge her own level of risk. Of course, she's the one who doesn't want to get injured, even more so than I don't want her to get injured. But right. she, I find that she has very good judgment that way, and she doesn't do things that are uh, that are risky. And but the only way she's going to develop that judgment is if you just sort of grit your teeth and where the risk for injury is minimal or the injury itself is minimal, then you just let them go. And and she learns that way, and and that's a much better way of making her safe than me constantly, uh, you know moving things out of her way and keeping her yeah. from going too fast. And she's very, she's very assertive that way. If she feels she can do it, she, she will not want me to help quite vociferously. Right. No, they don't. That's right. And so you don't want to help too much. Um, sometimes I'll even do something like, um, like I'll be frying some eggs and I'll say, Ethan, stick your hand in here. And he'll look at me and say, no. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, say, I'll say, good answer. I'll say, number one, you learn that you don't have to listen to, what, to authority all the time. And if someone tells you to do something stupid, don't do it. And number two, you better be aware of how hot this plate is. That's good, you know. So now if he tried to reach his hand up there, I wouldn't let him. But every time I've done this, he kind of looks at me and he says, no. And uh, <laughs> No, and I, I, I think if my daughter, like when I try to help my daughter with stuff that she can always already do, uh, I absolutely am convinced that if she had the word, she'd say, Daddy, don't infantilize me. I'm, I'm, I'm 18 months old now. <laughs> Uh, I'm 18, so please don't infantilize me. I don't, I don't appreciate it. Yeah, and I'm sure tough. that she will say that at some point in her life. But it, yeah. it, it is tough to withdraw that that level of protectiveness. Now, uh, is there are there any uh, uh, um, uh, what are the socializing aspects of the Montessori stuff? Because to some degree, the kids get left alone, but they also aren't they put into um, to groups and teams uh, to to get particular projects done? Yeah, they are uh, uh, in the grade season and now. It's usually by uh, usually by age, but but not always. But yeah, they do all kinds of cooperative things. And the cool thing is, they get to. I mean, my son is really into dinosaurs. I mean, you wouldn't believe how into dinosaurs he is. And uh, oh, I I would absolutely. I mean, when you're when you're you know you said he was he's seven. Is that right? He's almost seven. And uh, yeah, he's almost seven. So when you're six, the idea of being thirty feet tall and giant and having all the power in the world. I mean, it's it's a compensation, but it's a very good thing. I think. That might be the reason. We a lot of parents wonder why dinosaurs are so fascinating to kids. That could be part they're of they're bigger it. than parents. Yeah, so. yeah. yeah that's, that's why right. they like those transformers and things like that too. Anything that's giant and bigger than parents, children are naturally drawn. <laughs> but um, I, I'll tell you one thing that was kind of interesting. I, in a way, I think dinosaurs helped my kid learn to read early because um, uh, he he I started he, he was interested in these things early on, like like bird birds, and and I never like to give him these fake 
I mean, you watch Nemo, but but by and large, like we won't go to Disney World and things like that. We go to natural things like fly fishing in the in Colorado, or you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because he likes that kind of stuff, and it's so much better than these plastic artificial vacations, to my mind. Mm-hmm. And so, when he was, I think, like eighteen months old, or really young, um, I he, I saw he loved dinosaurs, and I, all the stupid cartoony things are, are just dumb. But I, I heard about this. Uh, a uh, well-known um, documentary, which I'd never heard of before, called uh, Walking with Dinosaurs. And it's like this BBC production, and it was a couple years old at the time. And it's basically you know, really good special effects recreations of dinosaurs on realistic sets, and it's, it's very, very um, educational. And, and But it's, they're very graphic. I mean they show dinosaurs tearing each other's guts out and things, and my son would just sit there and watch. He loves it because it's just natural. So he's watched all these things for years, and he was learning to read then. But he was learning words like Deinonychus and Struthiomimus. I mean, things that are, you know, most <laughs> wow. people I know can't even pronounce, much less spell. Right. And he's young reading this stuff. And let me tell you, if you can say Deinonychus and spell it, then cat and dog are not. That's <laughs> pretty easy, right? He literally, his, he was just so intensely interested in dinosaurs, reading these dinosaur encyclopedias, just forcing his way to read it because he loved them so much. I mean, made reading no sweat. Right. Yeah, and that's, that is uh, hooking into the child's natural drive for knowledge. And it, then the learning, which so often is perceived as an end in itself, learning is always a means to an end, right? Like yes. everything is a means to the end of happiness. So it's like, okay, so I want to get to the other side. I have to build a bridge. But it's to get to the other side. And, and children, I think, should be encouraged to pursue learning in order to facilitate what they're naturally interested in, which is, again, I think is, is the Montessori approach, right? Yeah, but you can blend it with other things, too. You can say you could, blend, you could, you could make a math lesson out of it. You can make a, a chemistry or history lesson out of it or an earth, earth – or, you know, I've blended this with a lot. I mean, because he loves dinosaurs and earth, earth history so much, we have long talks about global warming and things like this. And he, he just laughs at these guys that – he goes, don't they know another ice age is coming? We're in an interglacial period, Dad, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and, uh, and uh, what do you mean there's a shortage of water? The whole planet's water, Dad. That's silly. You know, these kinds of things. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. So, yeah, aren't I mean, these, Aren't these environmentalists silly? <laughs> yeah, they're silly, Dad. And I wonder, I mean, I can't imagine it would ever happen, but if he, if he did, with, with that attitude towards authority and that outspoken skepticism, it, to me, it's almost impossible to imagine him in a public school. Again, I know it wouldn't be, but, but how would that even work? I mean, he'd be sort of putting his hand up and saying, no, 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 this is incorrect because this, this, and this, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I, mean, luckily, I don't even know how the teacher would handle that. Yeah, and, and luckily, Montessori explicitly, I mean, they, they kind of warned us of this when we started uh, interviewing. They said, now, we want to, we're going to warn you. We teach the kids to think independently and to... I mean, they didn't say challenge authority, but the kids are taught that if they don't agree or they have a different opinion or they have a question about even what their parents said, they're, they're free to ask it. And we said, that's perfectly okay with us. Now, uh, no school nowadays is free of the clutches of you know, statism and PC and all this stuff. Um, um, and I know you've mentioned on some of your podcasts that you've thought about what's the best educational approach. Should it be homeschooling or uh, I, talk, I heard you talk about unschooling. I wasn't sure exactly what that meant. Um, did that mean like to go to a conventional school and then you, you try to undo the damage on the side? <laughs> no, or? it's uh, it, it's really letting the child – I'm no expert on it. I'm trying to get someone on the show to give me more information. But what I understand is that you don't have a curriculum. You don't have uh, – it's just whatever the kid is interested, that's what you facilitate. Uh, so it, there is no set program of things that they need to learn. by. Oh, but it's, but it's homeschooling. You mean it's a type of homeschooling? Yeah, it's a t- I think it's a type of homeschooling. Okay. I think that there are schools that, that work in that uh, genre, but okay. it's, uh, it's really uh, open-ended and absolutely child-driven. Uh, 
it, it, it blows my mind a little bit. Uh, I, can't, uh, I can't dismiss it, of course, until I learn more about it. But um, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of homeschooling just because I have a huge amount of respect for the profession of teaching. I think it is a difficult thing. Yeah. I don't do my own dentistry. I don't make my own right. clothes. Uh, I don't make my own antibiotics. I really have, uh, I'm, I'm big on specialization. Yeah. I think as a free market uh, person needs to respect specialization. A really great, and I, I did this, I, I taught in a daycare and I, I taught a, spe- a gifted kids class when I was in my early 20s or I didn't, te- I was a teacher's assistant. And a really good teacher is uh, is a complete gem, and I just don't think you can reproduce that at home. It takes a lot of skill and experience to uh, to teach children. So I hope to find a good teacher, and so uh, homeschooling to me is a last resort, but I, I don't think it'll be necessary. We've got lots of good schools, uh, private schools around yeah, we, here. But you and I think has- similarly. We think similarly about this. I've thought about it for a long time, and of course you and I, I and I assume you, we don't have the hostility to homeschooling that a lot of conventional people do who – they're frightened by no, the it's, idea. No, it's better than public schooling for sure, without yeah. a doubt. To me, homeschooling is number two. Uh, I think it's yeah. number two on my – I think my personal view now is the best would be a good private Montessori and mm-hmm. preferably AMI. Uh, that's the type my kids have there. So AMI is the is the is one of the two big accrediting agencies. AMI is the original sort of philosophy from Europe. It's sort of – you can think of it as Catholic and then the, there's a second spinoff group called AMS, American Montessori Society, which is sort of like Protestant. So they um, and there's a long, interesting history behind what happened there. But um, AM, my personal view is the best school for a child would be um, a good private AMI Montessori school. And then second, depending upon your schools in the area, second will probably be homeschooling. Um, but I agree with you. There's a division of labor, and they have materials that that work out there. Although I think you know, you or I, and most intelligent libertarians, for example, could homeschool their kids better than almost any public school is going to do nowadays, which is in a way a sad comment about public schooling, right? I mean... Sure. Um, oh, yeah. The, the public schools are just... I mean, I, I went to a fairly good public school, and I just still found it grindingly boring. Uh, and it was Lord of the Flies for the kids because they're so oppressed that they turn on each other like jackals. And I just... It was not a positive experience at all. And and I didn't... I mean, I wasn't in some sort of inner city. I was at a fairly respectable suburb when I was in Canada. And uh, it was uh, it was rough. Uh, it was just you know boring and and aggressive and cliquey. And I just thought so many bad lessons were being taught implicitly through the very structure of public education uh, that that you don't matter, that you're just a cog in the wheel, that that you don't have a voice, that your choices don't matter, that your preferences don't matter. Uh, all of that to me was just it took a lot of time to to turn that around when mm-hmm. I got out of school, and yep. and it doesn't prepare you for university at all. Well, yeah, I agree. I, I, you know, I went to private Catholic schools in, in Louisiana, Baton Rouge, and they were pretty good. And uh, even there, there's bullying and there's, um, there's bad kids. And I, I, you know, as as an adult, as a libertarian, I, I, I've written about this before. I, I, I'm always struck now why kids, why why schools allow this. I mean, b- bullying. Now, I've mentioned this before, and some of my macho friends say, "Oh, you know, the, this is the problem, society, too much litigation," but. Bullying is aggression. It is a crime. I mean, when one child pummels another, it is a crime. You know, and I, it, of course, the schools shouldn't allow it. And if you get to the point where you have to do something as a parent because the school's not, then you have a big problem because they're already in a horrible environment. But you know, I think I said something like, I, I sort of wonder if bullying is a genesis of, liber- of a lot of libertarians because you you become aware of the evils of aggression at an early age. You know. Um, and it should be stopped. And in fact, I mean, I don't know if you, I don't think you should put a young child in jail, but it is technically it's a crime and it should be dealt with some kind of way. It should certainly be stopped. 
And, well, but I mean, the, the place you would look to is the home environment, right? I, I don't think it would be fair to punish the kid. I mean, I think it's a truism that's almost not worth stating. But just to mention it, I mean, bullies, of course, experienced the bullying at home of course. Uh, primarily and then acted out against others. So you would, uh, in, in the same way that a, a kid who has no energy, you would look into their diet at home. You would yeah. just look into the social environment at home. And of course, as, as I've often argued, the non-aggression principle needs to apply to the most vulnerable First, that's why we need the principles, right? Is that Mike Tyson in a bar doesn't need anybody to uh, to to uh, protect him from anybody else, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, it is is the kids, of course, and and this is the great challenge in in a status society is that in whose interest is it to uh, to ensure that children are protected, right? Families uh, are kind of like this biosphere that's very difficult to to get into and deal with. Certainly, your average uh, public school principal and teacher aren't going to want to get involved in volatile situations where uh, children may be aggressed against because uh, you know, parents can, can get quite aggressive uh, to anybody who intervenes. So uh, that to me is one of, the it's one of the paradoxes. We get to a free society, I think, by treating children according to the principles that we want reflected in society as a, as a whole. But there's little incentive in a state of society to protect uh, children from aggression uh, by whoever, right? whether it's bullies or parents or priests or whatever. Nobody has that kind of vested interest. If the schools at least were private, then they would be facing the competition of other schools who had better ways of dealing with bullying, which would at least yes. be some step in the right yeah, direction. Yeah, they, they could, ex they could expel have. a bad kid if they had to, right, which in public schools is, is almost impossible to do it. Uh, you, you had a good point on one of your podcasts about um, – one of the purposes of public schools, I had never thought about this. Um, I've always thought, you know, the purpose was indoctrination, which I think it is a large, a large purpose. But you had the point that um, it, it it keeps these kids busy, so the parents can both work <laughs> and pay taxes to the state. You know, and I think you're right. And so they're busy, and they're too busy to rebel or something, you know, or to think too much about what the government's doing. I think that's also a good point. Oh, it's a it's a terrible tragedy. I mean, uh, the, the children are raised. Without, for the, for the most part, the majority of children are raised with both parents working, which means that other people, uh, usually state-licensed daycares, or, or I, sometimes, of course, it's relatives and so on, which is, which is better. But um, yeah, ch children are raised uh, without their parents. That's a real tragedy. I think one of the reasons that society was more free in the post-war period was because usually the mom, but at least one parent, was, was home providing primary care. Uh, for the kids, right, and you get right. all the bonding, you get that that intimate moral instruction, you get uh, the, the the personal attention, and so on, and that all began to shatter in the in the seventies. Uh, and uh, it, it's not, I don't correlation is not causation, of course, but you can see the size of government really beginning to accelerate when women go into the workforce, because of course there's more taxes, which means more they can borrow more money, create more programs, and because of the void left by moms going into the workforce, you had a lot of demand for. Uh, these social services, um, for want of a better phrase, right? I just yeah. finished doing a whole speech about don't use this language, but uh, to use the shorthand, uh, these these state programs had to come in to fill that void, and it really just accelerated from from there to the point where children have a much more intimate relationship with state representatives than they do with their own parents. You know, whether it's teachers or daycare teachers or whatever. Uh, that's really tragic because it's hard for children to rebel against their parents, and I right. think that's one of the reasons that the government likes to get its meaty little hooks into them early and and long. No, I think that's right. Um, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, you and you were asking just now about uh, we got on this because you were asking about uh, uh, you know ch children um, uh, disagreeing with with you know what the teachers teach in school and things like this. And 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 like I was saying, every school is is influenced a little bit by this PC stuff and this pro-statism. Um, although I've been pleasantly surprised at mine that it's not really an issue. 
But you know, I've now this is a more of a, a particular libertarian concern. I mean, uh, you know, my kid's old enough now. I've made him aware that my views are not typical. Right mm. now, he's he's got the right to state his opinion. He should he should be able to express it clearly if he disagrees. But you know, I told him sometimes it's going to be dangerous, or people don't want to hear it, or whatever. And um, you know, uh, when, when when there's Earth Day at school, or something like that, you know, I'll say, you know, did you tell the teacher what you think? And he'll say, no, Dad, I kept my mouth shut. You know, and so he's <laughs> he's shy, but he's aware that it might be different than the normal. Um, and uh, so that's kind of a challenge trying to explain to a child. And the other challenge is, you know, uh, I mean, you don't want to be brainwashing your own child, right? I mean, we, we right. believe what we believe. And I tell my kid repeatedly over and over and over and over again, so, no, Ethan, this is what I believe. You don't have to believe what I believe. And I'll say, but dad, I want to believe what you believe. And I'll say, well, but you need to have good reasons for it. And you're, free, you, you know, I tell them you're free to disagree with me. You know, you don't have to agree with what I believe. Believe. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. Uh, <laughs> to teach a child even correct conclusions is still indoctrination because yeah. you're not teaching them how to think. You're just teaching them what to think, and yeah. that is really tragic. Uh, so, uh, you know, I've been often been asked about this: What am I going to teach uh, my kid about the world? And it's like, well, I'm I'm not going to teach my daughter my conclusions. Uh, a, that's not giving her anything useful, right? But just telling her what I believe without the process of how I came to believe it, which is the real point. And secondly, it's assuming that I'm right about everything, which is far from the case, of right, course, right? right? As she thinks she's going to correct me uh, on a number of things, just as she's correcting me now on what she, she can do versus what I think she can do. Yep. So it's, it's in the same thing. You wouldn't teach a kid answers to math problems. You would teach them how to solve math problems. Exactly. And it's the same thing with, with the content of libertarian ideas or any really philosophical or, or, or a reasoning process. I don't want to teach her my conclusions. I really just want to teach her how to think so that she can instruct me better and apply it, of course, to every sphere in the future. Well, I even used that early on. I mean, I'm talking maybe three, three years ago now. I used that as a, as a learning opportunity. You know, when he, he would actually sometimes disagree with me, like on whether dinosaurs came from birds or, you know, some theory or some – and and or, or whether this dinosaur came from this era and we didn't have a book to look it up and he would he would insist that it was Triassic and I would say I think it's Jurassic or whatever, and we couldn't agree and I would say well I said you know what we do we need to agree to disagree and and so I taught him that early on and we that comes up every now and then now sometimes it frustrates him when I do it too much <laughs> because I just won't accept what he says and I'll say well let's just agree to disagree, but we have disagreements you know but usually when he asks a question like. Uh, about something. I'll say, well, some people think this and some people think that, and I'll tell them the truth. And he'll say, well, what do you think? I'll say, well, I think this, and here's the reasons why I think this. Unless he asks me a question about, uh, about atheism or God, which I, I'm pretty careful about that one because my wife is not quite with me on that one. So right, right. <laughs> that's, that, you know, I want him to come up with his own. I know, what, I know he's going to conclude like I have about that. Um, right. Now, remember, son, mommy's going to atheist hell. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> now, listen, I, I want to be aware, again, aware of your time. Um, I, I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. I really wanted to, uh, you know, for people who see or who listen to this, um, uh, libertarian or, or atheist or whoever, uh, I, I really do want to encourage more of a conversation uh, in libertarian, among libertarians or, or, or anarchists about uh, issues of parenting. I mean, there is this, you know, to, to put things into a, a ridiculous kind of black and white categorization, there are two general approaches to, to change in the world. One is, of course, political action or political non-action if you're going to go the aggressive route and disengage. But it's focusing on the political structure. The other is uh, my approach, of course, which may be right or may be wrong. I think it's right, is to look at social change, particularly the kind of social change like a stateless society or whatever, a religious, religion-free society, 
that is a multi-generational process, that uh, most people uh, are too fixed in their ways, too set in their ways, and much like a scientific paradigm where people say, you know, old bad scientific ideas never, uh, never die out, only their followers eventually snuff it. There is um, a focus, I think, an underfocus on the value of uh, parenting uh, and bringing up children with the non-aggression principle, with looking upon authority as a benevolent resource rather than a, a finger-wagging power structure. Uh, and I think that's, you know, we, we want to teach our kids to grow up without deference to authority, without fear of authority, and that way they simply won't speak the language of status hierarchy when they get older. That, to me, is the way that society changes. It's a drag because we won't probably get to live to see it, but I think it is, you know, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step in the right direction rather than, I think, political action, which I'm not a huge fan of. So I really wanted to extend the invitation, if, if you're a libertarian or a philosopher, a free thinker, whatever it is, uh, that maybe we can set up some more regular uh, conversations about uh, parenting, uh, which I think would be a lot of fun. I certainly uh, have learned a lot from you, Steph, uh, about stuff, because you're further down the road than I am, which is great uh, to hear. I, I'd really like to, to learn more from other libertarian parents or, or free-thinking parents and uh, to share the stuff that I've managed to pick up. I think it's an underrepresented and very necessary conversation uh, in what it is that we're doing. So uh, thanks so, so much for taking the time. And if you can think of anyone uh, we can send this to who might want to pick up this, maybe we could do a semi-regular, like once a month kind of thing, uh, because I really think it's under-talked about and really, uh, really important for what we want to do as a movement. Will do. Uh, I agree. I'd love to. That's a good idea. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks. All the best. Bye.